Hey everybody, it's John. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. This week, I'm going to keep this short because this is a long episode. This week we talked to Jeff Murphy, who was one of the founding members of the legendary power pop band Shoes. These guys have been around for 40 years. And this interview is a little different than some of the other ones that we've done up to this point. This is more of a career retrospective. We touch on all the same themes that come up in all the other interviews, the highs and the lows, but we do it kind of album by album. You're going to learn and be turned on to some excellent music if you don't already know this great band. Jeff was a super nice guy, and I just basked in the time that he allotted me. Jeff's a great guy. Hope you enjoy it. He called me from his home outside of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Well, Jeff Murphy, thank you very much for talking with me this evening. I want to tell you how I first discovered shoes. And maybe you've heard this before. So I believe it was 2006, April 1st, VH1 Classic runs the first 24 hours of MTV on, their th- on the 35th anniversary of the launch of MTV. And I get obsessed with this, right? So I, um, I sit there all day and watch every video that comes on, and I believe there were three or four shoes videos played in, on that first day. Yeah, I had never right. heard of I've never heard of shoes, and I'm watching this thinking, who in the world are these people? Who this is some the music was so unique, the look was unique, the videos as dated as they were were unique, and I just thought this kind of music, this kind of band does not exist in today's world. Who in the world are these people? So that's how I got turned on to shoes. And uh, I wanted to start from the beginning, if you don't mind, hearing a little bit about how you guys came together and then get into maybe some of the ups and downs of the, sh- of the career that you guys have had in the band. You're from Zion, Illinois. Yeah, where, really. how, where is that even? Uh, Zion, Illinois is uh, in the northeasternmost corner of, of Illinois, right on the shores of uh, Lake Michigan. Um, and it's positioned about halfway between Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, although growing up as kids, you know, Chicago was uh, what we considered to be the big city. You know, I mean, and sure. the radio radio that we listened to, because when we were when we were kids, it was the days of the transistor radio. Everyone had a tra- their own personal transistor radio, kind of like today. Everybody has an iPod or a cell phone or, that they put their music into. At that point, it was it was transistor radios and. Um, it was kind of the golden age of, of top 40. Um, you know, when we f- first became aware of music, my brother and I are very close in age. We're only a year apart. And he's my big brother. He's my big brother. So he had a big influence on whatever I did. I mean, you know, he, he was always a little more astute in terms of what was going on out there. Um, but we, um, we grew up there. We, um, uh, uh, went to school there. Zion was a dry town, which meant they had no alcohol. They didn't sell alcohol, so they had no clubs, no bars. So, um, and again, when we first, you know, got into music and as kids, when the Beatles were on at Sullivan and when the British invasion happened, it just, you know, every red-blooded American kid, and sure. it probably wasn't even confined to America, just thought it was the coolest thing. And um, we grew up, I mean, they, to this day, my brother and I, 
when we talk about ages or in our family life or what was going on, we 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 gauge what year it was based on what Beatle album. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> because because sure. the Beatles were so so uh uh predominant, but but they did you know, uh, you could mark time. They did two two hours yeah, a year. They're the benchmarks. Yeah. Yeah. So um and uh John and Gary um went to high school together. That's how they got to be friends and and uh, they both, you know, you know, hung out together. They they were involved in a, a kind of a a rogue magazine in school, I guess I'll call it. You know, there was the official school newspaper, and then there was kind of the national lampoon of the school newspaper, the Mad Magazine, or the, you know, and it was the it was my brother and and Gary and some other school pals, and they did this kind of offshoot magazine where they where they lampooned the school and made fun of the teachers. Uh, John's a great. Uh, caricature artist and so he would do the illustrations and John and Gary got to be friends and talk music and had this dream wouldn't it be cool someday to have a band I mean and nobody played any instruments <laughs> it was just this this right. kind of idea but um, Gary and I were both uh, kind of um, gearheads as it were you know back, back in those days you had stereos and you know receivers and speakers and, and in high school that was Maybe maybe your most prized possession next to your car. I mean, this is sure. probably predated getting cars, where you bought your stereo and a nice turntable. And and um, and for me and Gary, we we had reel to reel tape recorders. Um, John and Gary were kind of uh, puttering around, and in, in you know the the by then they were out of high school and in early college, and I had um, you know purchased. I'd done some investigation. I, I was working at a a radio shack at the time, and mm-hmm. I knew a guy that that told me you can actually buy multi-track tape recorders. There's this new one by TIAC called the 3340, and it it will do where you can record something different on on each of the four channels, and they'll be in time with each other, in sync with each other. And a right. radio stereo machine, you can't do that with. You can't record on the left channel, and then listen to that and play something in it and record on the right channel. It won't be in time. Um, it's it's a because there's a uh, different the location of the record head and and the uh, playback head are different on a tape machine and and so there's a time lag so you can't play okay. but on a on a professional multi-track machine and the TX 3340 was that machine so I tracked one down and bought it flew it in and started screwing around just recording and John and Gary were do you remember this. how much it cost I'm curious you know what. I, I do, because what happened was, at the time, America had what they called tr- fair trade laws. Okay. And fair, tr- fair trade laws were where a company could release a product and establish a price, and it was actually against state law to sell it for less than that. And the, the fair uh, trade price on the TAC 3340S was uh, $1,200. What? But, but I had... I mean, Did you get a Radio Shack discount? No, no. What it was, no. Radio Shack wouldn't carry anything as cool as a TI. <laughs> oh wow, okay. <laughs> um, but um, I was always getting different, you know, stereo magazines, and in the back you would have these stereo discount companies, you know, that would mm. sell. And in this, in the District of Columbia, which is not a state, they were not right. confined. They were not confined to state uh, oh, fair wow. trade laws. So they had it for seven hundred and fifty bucks. So I had it air freighted in. The air freight cost me, I don't know, another fifty dollars at the time or whatever it was. And so I saved four hundred dollars. And wow. that that machine gave us 
our career. I mean, really what happened was, you know, right. John and Gary were screwing around. I kind of became, I mean, I'm, I'm, they would ask me to record stuff by them. I, I was always around, you know, so yeah. I, they, ne- they never asked me to join the band. I just kind of, you know, uh-huh. uh, kind of, uh, you know, through osmosis became, I, you know, they had to have me push buttons and, and stuff. So, um, and that was in uh, the very earliest stuff was, was in probably 1974. Right. Um, so maybe, 400 maybe bucks. Even, 400 bucks is really, I mean, that was a lot of money back then for a young guy working in a radio shack. Obviously that was money well spent, but I mean, I can't imagine that was an easy purchase or was it, was it just like a no brainer or were you kind of buying, would you be the equivalent of someone today who's buying the latest computer or the latest gadgets or something like that? Was it, was it that kind of an obsession with, yeah yeah it kind of was that and and part of it it was a very traumatic thing for me because um like i said it was 750 for the machine 50 bucks to fly it in so probably 800 dollars altogether and um i was i was i was 19 um and um so i thought i'm going to take out my first loan to buy this thing now i had almost exactly that much money in the bank in my bank account Mm -hmm. But I thought I'm gonna to have to get credit going, you know. So this would be my first loan. So I went to the bank and they wouldn't give it to me. And they said you have to. Ha-, I said I have that much money in your bank. Right. I said doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You have to have your parents co-sign. And I said, well, what oh, if my wow. parents are, are dead? What if they decide they never want to co-sign for me? What if? Yeah. And they said it doesn't matter. That's that's the rules. And um, so I went and asked my parents if they would co-sign. And um, I had, you know, at that age, it was pretty tumultuous. I was still living at home, and and sure. my I had kind of a, a recent dust up with my folks <laughs> oh, over over babysitting my little sister. They wanted me to kind of change shifts. At that point, I had started working at a factory, and oh, so wow. I had a little had a little bit more money, and um, they wanted me to change shifts so I could come home and babysit my sister. And I said, No, I, I got my life to live. I got things I got to sure. do. I'm not gonna change my shift so I could come home and babysit and and they were upset with me so they refused to co-sign the loan. Wow. So I um I uh talk, a friend of mine said I'll do it. He was 21. He said I'll co-sign for you. And uh, so he did and um that was uh you know that that was changed that everything. Yeah, it changed our lives. Wow. Now uh, am I missing the timeline here when you bought this machine had you started playing in their band? Or were you sort of buying it with the idea of you'd be kind of the behind-the-scenes, almost producer-type recording and helping them make their music? Well, they didn't really have anything going on yet. Oh, okay. So it was I mostly just, something – it was like a toy, right? Yes, exa- exactly. Okay. It was just it was just kind of an extension of the fact that I was a gearhead, and I loved yeah. that stuff. And I, okay. I had – in high school, I had gotten a guitar from a friend of mine, um, picked up a, an old Tisco Del Rey for 30 bucks from him, so I was doing these little recordings on my own, just for just for the fun of it, really. I mean, not for sure. And that that's really why the band started was for the fun of it. I mean, there was this. It was it was funny and it was fun uh, to hear John and Gary talk about this pipe dream of this band. And it was they would make these make these grand stories of you know how you know when we tour here we're going to do this and when we right. and there was no band there was no instruments they couldn't play anything right. it was just this. So it was, uh, and we all, but we all grew into it together. We all learned how to mm-hmm. play. We all, 
we speak the same language. We don't have any formal training, and we still can't read music or any of that. Um, wow. But we, we, because we learn together, we speak the same language. You know, we have uh, kind of odd names for certain chords. Well, you know, if, if a chord was written, uh, or if, if a song was written around a certain chord, sometimes we'll name the chord after the song. You know, we'll say like, "Oh, that's the hunter. That's the hunter chord." Because there was we used it in this this instrumental thing we we're doing called the hunter. You know, right, <laughs> so, right. Um, yeah. And, and just over the years, like I said, by by seventy four, uh, by the summer of seventy four. We were starting to record these things together, and I had gotten another gadget from a friend of mine who had got, picked it up at a record sale because he thought I, I might want it, and it was a record cutter. Um, back in the fifties, really? they would you could buy these record cutters and cut your own lacquer, you know, and <laughs> sing your own song, and you know. Sure. So I bought I bought that thing from him, and figured out how to get it going, and um, bought the parts that were missing, and bought some blank discs, and. Um, um, and Shoes recorded their first, our first batch of songs. There were ten songs. I wrote one, and John and Gary wrote uh, the other nine. And wow. we knew that we knew that this record cutter could fit ten minutes on a side. So the ten <laughs> songs, you know, you they, you had to get five songs on a side. So the songs were uh-huh. like a minute and a half or two minutes or whatever. But it yeah, was our yeah. first, our first uh, organized group of songs. That's amazing. And um, that was, you know, that was really yeah. the, kind of the, the beginning of it. And so that's incredible. So you guys, I mean, this sounds like kind of, it's a pipe dream. It's not, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not tackling music careers as if your life depends on it, as if we are getting out of this small town, we want to hit it big. It's more, isn't this fun and wouldn't it be great and wouldn't it be cool if we heard ourselves on the radio? That's but, exactly right. That's exactly right. And then right. the fun, the enjoyment of the of creating while you're carrying on your regular life um, becomes so much that it's like, well, why not just keep doing this? It's so much more fun. Exactly. That, and and okay. literally, literally less than five years after we record that lacquer in my basement, we're we're in a studio in England recording yeah. our first major label album. I know that there were some earlier albums, uh, Heads or Tails, Bazooka, that kind of thing. Um, black Vinyl Shoes. that your first album because it was sort of the first official where the others more like homemade or no, they were all I know know, so was, so was black vinyl black black yeah that's true yeah that was 
it's just it was it was just this natural progression. I mean, like I said, we did heads or tails, and we we recorded it and cut it on this hand, you know, hand. Um, yeah. We had to pull the chip off as it cut the lacquer. That's amazing. Then Gary immediately after we finished that went to um, the U of I uh, program for architecture in Versailles, France. Right. So when the when the fall came, he was gone. So in the meantime. John, I think, had come up with this idea. Why don't we do some recording and surprise Gary? You know, we'll show him how serious yeah. we are about this. We'll do this batch of songs. And in the meantime, I moved out of my parents' house and moved in with a friend of mine who was a drummer. We we both got our first apartment together, and it was this right. adventure, you know. So we set up the band in the living room, the recording gear. And this is all still in Zion, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you're and, working uh, in a factory. Yep. Yep, yeah. working seven to three in the factory, and then coming home and recording at night. And we wow. did. Um, uh, and John was away at, at University of Illinois down in Champaign, so he'd come home for on weekends or on Easter break, and we would record together. And um, we put together this album called One in Versailles. <laughs> had been in a marching band in junior high and in his record collection he had an album from that time and I said how did you how did they press this I mean you know you weren't signed to a label he said no the school just did it so I started tracking things down found out there was a pressing plant in Chicago and you could actually pay money and they'd press up the tapes that you sent them and I thought cool so we we sent away the tapes for one of her size and again the 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 theory was we'll surprise Gary and we'll show him this album that we did and it's huge, right. you know? So, um, and that's what we did. And when Gary came back then in the summer and you know, like about, about this time of year, it was like April or May of 75. Um, we tore right into another project okay. and you know, now, we learned a little bit this. more. Yeah. Do you remember how much it costs? I mean, again, I'm, I'm just envisioning this guy who, it's like the guy, like you were saying, a guy in his car where all of his free time, all of his free spending cash is going into buying a new uh, whatever, a new transmission, a new, you know, a new paint job, a new whatever, some little knickknack. You sound like this guy who's just so into gadgetry that that's where all your money's going and these are just, you're buying more toys. And Absolutely. these toys are supporting the music habit. Which again, yeah. like I said, is just kind of getting building and building. How many yeah. record, How much did it cost you to press one in Versailles? And do you remember how many of those you cut? Um, we did the minimum, which was um, three hundred. Okay. And I want to say it was about three dollars a copy to press them, 
and the jackets and and all that. I want to say it was around three dollars a copy. Wow. Um, it's a long time ago, so I don't remember. But I mean, sure. again, the, the thing is, what it what that did, and it is, we made all kinds of mistakes. Right. Um, well, didn't realize. Figuring you know, it out. Yeah. 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 We and when you see the original the label, they said, "What do you want on the label?" So I just put a piece of paper in my typewriter and I typed out the t- table or the, the titles of the songs on each side. Uh-huh. And I sent sent it into them. And then when we got the albums back, what they had done was they just took a photo of my typewriter uh-huh. letter, and that was the label. <laughs> we yeah. Was, we said, "Oh, okay. So that's what you got to do. You, you know, you gotta you gotta design the graphics." Um, so are you course, playing shows at least? You were saying that playing no. live is not your thing. So how are you even selling these records, or are you? They're just there because you had to buy three hundred of them. Yes, exactly. They're under the bed. You know, okay. I mean, it was it was we were going to use it and send it off to record companies as our demo, and we were yeah. thinking this will stand out because everybody has a tape, everybody sends a demo tape, but we're going to send a vinyl twelve inch album, not a single, a full album. But yeah. it, the, the recording was really crappy. The graphics were really primitive and black and white. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a really primitive, yeah. crude thing to do. Um, but so that I just Google image that I'm looking at it right now. That's so funny. Yeah, you're right. Just bare bones. Bare bones. Yeah, and John yeah. used. They used to have these things called chart pack letters. You know, and that was basically like these decals, that, uh, and it would be the letters of the alphabet. You could get different fonts. And you could, you know, rub it off onto a piece of paper. And that's John would, you know, put these graphic things together by using chart pack letters. And um, we put a little photo of the three of us, the drummer and John and I, taken just outside the, the, the back door from the little um, flat that we lived in. And, um, you know, that was uh, – yeah. but it was it was an accomplishment. You know, it was like sure. – and, and, you know, I remember selling it one a copy to the guy I worked with one of the guys at the factory, and he said, uh, yeah, listen, that album you guys did, it sounded like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know, I know. I mean, it's, you know, right. we're learning. It's joined in, in um, 76, mid-76, and then we started right into, um, uh, did a, we did a couple of gigs with Skip during the summer and went right into the recording of Black Vinyl Shoes. Okay. And and again, each, each of those records through that period got a little better. We learned the gear right. more. We could kind of judge things better. John's girlfriend took the pictures for the inside. Mm-hmm. We did a poster. We did a sticker. We just made it as complete a package and a professional as we could possibly make it. And um, that came out in the uh, late summer of 77. We started sending okay. them around, and our lives changed with that yeah. record. So that now that this is the crucial moment, right? So, you know, if you listen to, I heard this, uh, I got the Ramones on my iPod, and they've got a song called Indian Giver. Uh-huh. An old and when that song starts, it sounds. I'm always fooled by it. I always think it's fatal.
uh, our song oh, yeah. from Black Flannel uh, because they they have a similar feel in the intro. Sure. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that was an unusual. Wow. That was an unusual it song. <laughs> and it got in the right hands of somebody somewhere, right? Because right. Uh, then then people came calling to you, wanting to know what's going on, right? So what yep. what does that feel like? How does this? How does it get? Whose hands does it get into? And what is that first call like that where you're on your way? Well, we had started putting together a list of people that we thought might be receptive to our style of music. I mean, if we read a review there in in a, in um, our area, there was a, a free music paper called the Illinois Entertainer, and we would read the reviews in there. And there was one guy that that we targeted because we said, well, he seems to like the same kind of stuff that we do. Uh-huh. So and his name was Bill Page, and we sent him a copy, and he wrote back and he said, "I'm reviewing it. It's going to be in the next issue, and wow. I've got a friend that might be interested, and his name is Carrie Baker, and who's another you know again this was all new to us, so we sent Carrie right. Baker a copy, and then Carrie Baker was like opening the floodgates. Okay, he said, okay, send one here." Send one here. Send one here. Send one here. And and these critics, what what we were fortunate to be kind of on the crest of the wave of mm-hmm. the the whole sort of punk and new wave and do it yourself yeah. thing was starting to happen, and these fanzines were were popping up all over, which were you know basically fan run magazines, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so there was press all over the place. I mean and. And it was like, you know, like that old uh, commercial for Black Shampoo where they say, and she told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on right. and so on. And that's yeah. what started to happen. It just started to explode where the press was writing about it. And then Carrie Baker said, you need to send one to Greg Shaw in California. And we're like, oh, California, cool. Um, yeah. And he has got Bunt Magazine. And then Greg just went nuts for it, said, I'll buy up everything you have left, whatever you have, however many copies wow. you have left. I'll buy them. And at that point, you know, we had given away, we pressed up a thousand of the original black finals and we had mailed out about 300 to record companies and press uh-huh. people and anybody that we thought could, you know, was it something. getting any local radio play? No, no, okay. no, we had gone. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll step backwards about three years when we'd finished heads or tails back in 74 we uh-huh. drove up to the to the the local radio station in um, across the border into Wisconsin in Kenosha, which is where, kind of oh. where we, we that's, that's the area right. where we live now. And um, we went to the radio station, and back in those days, it was pretty low key, and we just really literally walked in and started talking to the DJ, and um, said, "Hey, will you play our tape?" And he said, "Sure." <laughs> so so he played <laughs> one of the like songs that. off. Of, so he played one of the songs off of Heads or Tails, which was the first airplay that we got. But wow. um, I remember this at the radio station um, in Chicago that was kind of the progressive, the cool radio station was WXRT. And I remember taking a copy into them at the time, and they said, no, the quality just isn't good enough on this to play on the radio. And we said, yeah, but you're playing stuff from, like, you know, 30-year-old blues artists recorded. Sure. There. And they said, yeah, but that's, you know, that's you know, classic. So, yeah, but maybe this will be classic 30 years from yeah. now. You know, yeah. I remember having that discussion with them, um, and they still don't play that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, but uh, the press became our 
biggest ally. And um, it just kept going and going. And when Greg Shaw at Bump um, sold and wrote about it, sold the copies and shipped them over to Europe, then we started getting European press filtering back into America, into New York. Then the New York Rocker and the Village Voice started to review it. And, um, you know, it just, it was really just, it was so much fun because <laughs> sure. every day, you know, you'd yeah. get a, a letter in the mail or a phone call from some place you never heard of and they were, you know, talking about your record. It was just That's so incredible. It was really exciting. And you're just hearing all of this back home, like secondhand, that the album or a song or whatever is taking off in some other place, unbeknownst yeah. to you. Because it's yeah. just word of mouth getting passed around. Okay, so then, um, so they, someone, I don't remember, I'm, I'm sorry, what label you guys were signed to, but someone brings you to England to make present tense, right? Right, what happened was, um, Greg Shaw had said to us, and this this is in um, late 77, I want to have you go in the studio and record a single. So that was the first time somebody was going to, we were going to use their money. We're going into a yeah. real studio. So we recorded, um, again, we're very democratic, if you probably noticed that in our songwriting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so he wanted us to redo the song Okay. So so that was, John wrote that. So we said, okay, okay so Gary, Gary and I will get together and write the song on the flip side, as the B side. Mm-hmm. So that way all three writers are represented. And um, we wrote this, Gary and I wrote this song called Tomorrow Night. that single and they released that in early 78 and then Greg said I'd like to reissue Black Vinyl Shoes because the original thousand that we had pressed were gone mm-hmm. so he was gonna and but he was having problems he was struggling you know entrepreneur sure. himself yeah. uh, couldn't get the funding together so eventually the people that were di- distributing him his records was a company called Gem Imports and they had brought in uh, Cheap Tricks Budokan which was, you know, hugely successful about that time. Huh. Right. And because um, CBS had turned that record down, the Cheap Trick Budokan record. So right, right. they were free to license it to whoever they wanted to in America, and um, PBC Imports decided to release it, and it became this hit. Of course, so, yeah. Um, so they licensed Black Vinyl from us and reissued it with a different cover. We, we, we did the artwork for the, the different cover as well, and okay. um, then uh, that came out in mid to late 78. Okay. And we were getting a, getting a little discouraged at that point because we kind of thought things would move a little faster. But then that started a whole new wave of reviews and press. People that didn't get a copy of the original 1,000, you know, now it's, it's making more mainstream papers. 
right. and radio stations. And there was, you know, WBCN in Boston started to play tr- cuts from that, the reissue. And there was a DJ there named uh, Maxine Sartori who had um, kind of helped establish the cars from Boston because she would play oh, them. Sure. Um, and they uh-huh. got signed uh, to Electra, you know, which is part of Warner Brothers. Yep. Yep. And uh, the cars broke in, you know, broke it open with their first, you know, just when right. I guess it was. So they were having success with Electra, and Electra felt um, like, let's go out and see what else is out there. And they called yeah. us up in that early, makes sense. yeah, January of '79. They called us up and said, well, let's have a meeting. And uh, I, they called me because I, I had the contact number, and I said, I don't want to come by myself. I, I mean, you got to fly the whole band in because we're democracy. Yeah. And, and they said, well, we'll come in to see you. So they did. They flew in like in January, and the wow. vice president, who had never signed a band before, he was the vice president of promotion, and he brought one of the guys from the New York office who had also kind of introduced us to the vice president. Vice president was from Los Angeles, so he didn't know this was going on in New York, and um, they both came in together, and uh, he said, uh, uh, the, there'll be uh, uh, tickets at the airport, bring a lawyer, meet me in L.A. Uh, wow. on, on this date. And uh, our lives changed. We called in sick That's from it. the hotel in L.A. to yeah. our jobs. I bet. I bet. And we did wow. the deal and, and then went to England. Yeah. So when you sign the deal, so here's where everything changes, right? This is kind of the moment. You've signed the deal. I imagine you're quitting your your day jobs. Yep. Right? Okay, yeah. so they're flying you out to England, and present tense comes out. And, I mean, I was – I'm 41, so I would have been about five years old when this album came out. What kind of, so I don't really know, what kind of success, I I sort of see present tense and tongue twister as being almost companion pieces with each other. Um, 
what what kind of success were you having? Who were you were you on the road? Were you opening for bands? Were you headlining your own shows? How many people no, were coming out? What what happened then? Um, we were we were the teacher's pet um, because okay. you know the, with Electra it's a very was a very small boutique label. They didn't sign a lot of bands. I mean the roster might have been fifty people total. I mean okay. they, you know, yeah. but they had people like um, you know the Doors and the Cars yeah. and the Eagles and and you know Jackson Brown. So so they didn't sign a whole lot of people. They expected a lot, and right. they're and the freedom that we were given within our contract was that we got to choose the producer, the studio, the songs. We were really in control of a lot of that. We wanted to make them happy and keep them pleased, but yet we were able to really guide the ship. And yeah. when we recorded in England, videos were, were we would, you know, at, after we'd have dinner, we'd, you know, go into the lounge and we'd watch videos. They had these video shows in England. They didn't have that in America yet. Right, right. So when we finished recording um, in the fall of 79 and we came home, uh, in, in early October, I think it was, um, the promotion department at Electra said, let's do some videos for the European market. Because sure. videos, you know, in, in America you had Don Kirshner's Rock Concert or Midnight right. Special, which were these kind of pseudo glitzy live, you know, things where these guys went up and lip sync. So that was different than these videos that were coming out of Europe. So we right. filmed four videos in one day on a yeah. sound stage, you know. And they were just, <laughs> and you just changed, I noticed that. You just changed did you just change your clothes and kind of yep. change the lighting in between each one? Yeah. Yep. And they moved their camera angles and yep. the very last one that we the very last one that we filmed was tomorrow night and we uh -huh. kept complaining about the fact that it was all shot on videotape. And videotape had such a harsh look to it. It looked like cheesy soap operas during the day. And we said, Is there uh -huh. anything that we can do to make it look smoother and fuzzier like film does. So, I mean, now you can do it with a push of a button on your computer. But back then, uh, the solution was, let's bring in fog machines. So they smoked up the yeah. set, for the, but just for the very last song. Because okay. if, it didn't, if it didn't look right, we didn't want to ruin all four songs. And it was a 20-hour day. It was a long shoot. And okay. we, the last last song was tomorrow night. So we did that was like I said, that was the end of 79. Um, and they they basically were used for overseas promotions and stuff like that. Fast forward to August 1st, 1981, MTV right. goes on the air, and they need videos Content. to play. Yeah, they got to play something. And here we are. We've got four videos. Boom, yeah. ready to go, right there. So they went into heavy rotation, and um, our fan mail exploded. So okay, so that so two questions. One, prior to the launch of MTV, was this one of those things where you guys are big in Europe somewhere because you're getting the kind of I don't know if you're being played on the radio, but they're seeing the videos periodically. So do you have a bigger fan base there? Do you have much of a fan? I still am not clear on whether you're playing shows or touring or anything in the U.S. at this point. Well, and that was that was one of the down things then we didn't have a whole much live experience at all we were very green and so when we came back after we filmed the videos in the fall it was decided we would do a tour we'd go out in november and december and start this tour and if if that went well we would extend it 
but right. it was uh, we hooked up with a with a heavy uh, hitter uh, agency out of California called Monterey Peninsula, which was again kind of a country club kind of agency. Okay. Um, because you know Electra, they were all in tight with these guys, and we thought, well, okay, if that makes sense for them. Um, everybody, you know, they we were being wined and dined by some of these. Sure. Because everybody expected really great things. Um, and up to this point, you haven't toured. You haven't no, been playing no, live. Your no, studio no. people kind of yeah. futzing around in there. Okay. We, we might have done a couple dozen shows t- before sure. that. Locally, so, probably something like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's decided instead of getting on a big tour and being an opening spot, we'll play smaller clubs and we'll headline. So Makes sense. Unfortunately, the agent is not good at booking those types of things. Oh. And another thing is, um, you know, like November and December in the Midwest, yeah. you, know, you are a you are slave to the weather at any given moment. Yeah. yeah. Compound it with the fact that you have these four guys that have no experience. We had no road crew, so yeah. they flew this crew out for us from Los Angeles. And these guys were greener than we were. Really? And it was a disaster. And that was one of the lowest points. That was a terrible, terrible time. Uh, by Christmas of 1979, we were completely depressed. We the, the tour, we called the tour off. We ha- had these really god awful. It was like the actor's dream where you get on stage and your pants fall. Yeah. It was that that yeah. kind of thing, night after night, um, for the, the three weeks we were playing out. We said, no, this is not working. Let's is that because this. you're playing? Is that because not very many people are showing up? Is that because? The weather is making it difficult to hit all these shows, or the road crew is kind of discombobulated. What's it really all feeding the depression? Okay, it was all those things. We were we were bad because we we were so uh, nervous. Uh, sure. I described I, I described this as five year olds on ice skates. You know, where if one goes down, yeah. they all go down kind of thing. That's yeah. what it was like for us at that time to play. Everything had to be stable, and if there was anything that shook us. Um, we could collapse on stage at any moment, you know, because, you know, right. somebody makes a mistake and everybody goes, what was that? You know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and the crew was making these terrible mistakes, blowing up gear and not forgetting to yeah. turn amps on and, and, and just, you know, blew up the Winnebago that we had rented. And, uh-huh. and, and then, you know, we had this snowstorm and we had to fly from one to get to the next show and, it was just this this, wor- this really bad experience, and we spent yeah. I don't know fifty thousand dollars in in three weeks doing this disastrous tour. We said, "What is the point of this?" So and that's um, all Electra's money, right? I mean, they they fronted you to. That was probably, yeah. I would imagine, with your your bonus or you know your advance when you signed with them. They're putting they, you out on the road, but it's not it's not working out. They charge that back to your royalties, you know, to your record sales. Yeah. So basically, that's part of your debt. Um, yeah. And um, by by Christmas, we said, let's get off the road, let's get back to songwriting, and let's go and, and start recording for Tongue Twister.
and did you guys do those in a studio, or did you do them back in your house? Or no, nope. you uh, sound like we... you're pretty self-sufficient. You're doing you're doing everything pretty pretty much in your terms because you can handle it yourself. But yeah, so those yeah, were we... done in the studio. No, we we rented a space and set up our own home studio in in a remote location. So now, instead wow. of it being in my kitchen, um, you know, uh, the tape recorder was in the basement of one of the storefronts that we were renting this uh, space, and wow. we would rehearse we would rehearse there, and then record the demos. And um, we had uh, in 2007 we released uh, those demos on a double disc called Double Exposure. And those are the demos right. that we did in that 8-track setting. And went out to L.A. to uh, try to find someone to work with in the studio, a producer to co-work with. Okay. Um, we went to see this band called Great Buildings, which was just mm-hmm. signed by EMI, and it was some of the guys that ended up being the Rembrandt. <laughs> Jobs and joke you broke Danny Wilde and, and um, yeah, yeah, and so we were backstage talking to those guys at, at uh, the whiskey, and um, I looked over and I recognized Richard Dashett, and because he had been featured in one of those modern recording magazines. Oh right, he had um, he had was the guy him and um, Ken Kelly who had produced the Rumors album for Fleetwood Mac, which is of course yeah. was, you know. And and again, when we were when we were making even black vinyl, the 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 Fleetwood Mac album, the first Fleetwood Mac album that they did with Lindsay and Stevie, was a big influence on us because the sounds really? were so good. We could huh. hear the bass. The first album, I could I could really identify the bass drum, and say that's what a bass drum sounds like. You know, let's, right. that's what we. So we started to try to emulate that. Um, so there's Richard. You know, we wanted to get him on present tense, but he was busy doing Tusk. But there he was, sitting on the other side of the room. Okay. So I walked over to him and said, uh, uh, you Richard Dash? And he said, yeah. And I said, I'm Jeff from Shoes. And um, we got to talking. And um, he asked, why are you here? So we're look, you know, uh-huh. looking for a producer. Yeah. So um, he invited us out to his house. And uh, a couple weeks later, we started Tongue Twister with him. Wow. So now Tongue okay, so let's jump ahead a little bit to MTV, because this is, I mean, this is probably a big deal. Yeah. Tongue Twister and Present Tense have already been out for a year or two in yes. both their cases. Um, were they, do you have a sense of maybe how many copies sold before uh, MTV became a factor? To the best of my knowledge, we never received any kind of sales statements from Electra. Oh, um, okay. Which was really, but I do know that we didn't sell anywhere near 
what everybody thought or hoped. I mean, for us, from Zion, Illinois, if somebody would have said to us we were going to sell 50,000 copies, we would have been like, yeah. Sure. How cool yeah. was that? But the yeah. problem is when we finished present tense, came back from England, and we had a playback party at the label, Joe Smith, from who was chairman of the board from Warner Brothers at the time, said at the meeting, we expect this album to sell three to four million units. Whoa. Now, wow. when when you have which was the kiss of death, because yeah. it's like when someone says to you, "Oh, oh, you you're the next Beatles," yeah, and that's the kiss of death. There's no way. Yeah. Um, so it put this this, which would have been nice, but they were basing it on the cars. Yeah, you know? true. And saying similar well, we sound, sold. similar vibe. Okay, I can get. Yeah, that. I mean yeah. they were they were much more kind of new wavy than we were. Right. We right. were more sort of you know. Uh, power pop or melodic rock right or, you know they were more kind yeah. of, in a weird kind of way their music sounds dated by they yeah, sound very 80 right um so but but anyhow that when when joe smith did said that and it didn't achieve that sales mark there was this disappointment yeah. and this sense right. of oh these guys aren't going to do it so yeah. by the time we did tongue twister and tongue twister's release date got really screwed up because we finished it in the fall of 1980. Electra was had five albums in the top ten. Um, the soundtrack for the Urban Cowboy. They had um, um, the Queen album, The Game. They had uh, the soundtrack for FM. They had okay. yeah. Eagles, The Long Run. They had, uh, let's see, there's a Jackson Brown maybe running on empty or something. Okay. So they said to us, look, our advertising budget is shot for the rest of the year because we're sure. pumping these albums. So we're going to hold this back until the early part of 81 to release. So we had nothing to do, literally, for four months. Yeah. You know? Now, and you're still not working, right? I mean, right. are you just holed up at home kind of waiting yep. for something to happen? Okay. Exactly. I mean, I think we went out, we did go out and do a few shows just locally. Yeah. But again, it was, you know, you were not supporting the new album because nobody knows the new album yet. It's sure. Still, it hasn't been released. Sure. In the meantime, the people at the label that have to get excited about promoting this record have been listening to it for four months. So their their enthusiasm for it has really waned by the time it, it comes out in. Sure. And, and January or February is not exactly the prime time to release a new album. Right. Right. Um, so by the time it came out, it died a death. I mean, really, it just really got no promotion. Many people didn't know it existed. It, it was really... So when MTV came on later that year, it was the shot in the arm that we needed. Were um, you aware of MTV when it happened? I mean, were oh, yeah. you... you oh, yeah. So you knew about... I mean, I would, I would have been too young, so I don't know. Was there a build-up? Did you know your videos were going to be played? Did you have access to watch them somewhere? No, no. We no. we 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 had read that MTV was coming. Um, okay. We it sounded like wow, this would be cool. And when MTV came on the air, it was in certain test markets initially because it was right. know, a cable thing. Um, but we were getting airplay through things like, uh, you know, like they had these cable shows, like, um, and we again we didn't have cable around here, so there was. No firsthand, you know, right. experience. Right, I know it, what you mean. There were things like on HBO that would have these. They would stick videos yeah. in between yeah. shows. Interstitials. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. 
so we were getting some exposure from that. But when MTV happened, uh, and like you said, the first day they started playing us right away, um, there was an article shortly after that where they were trying to hype MTV to the retailers saying sure. MTV sells records. And the, in, in, they did a full-page ad in Billboard. And in, in that page, they interview like five different um, record stores. And three of the, those five named shoes by name, specifically saying, these guys have never toured here. Yeah. And I'm not getting airplay here, but we're selling records now. It's got to be this MTV thing. Yeah, yeah. So we we took that into, you know, Joe Smith, the chairman of the board, said, look at this. Stacks yeah. of email. We banded up stacks of email that we were getting from the MTV exposure and said, look, we need to do some current videos. Those are from two albums ago. You know? Yeah. Let's yeah. do some new videos. And they said, look, MT- I mean, and if you, like I say, you didn't see what happened. When MTV first came on the air, there was this battle with record companies because record companies wanted MTV to play roy- pay royalties. They yeah. Said, look, right. you are, you are, using our product to promote your brand right. and your, you know, and to sell your cable channel. And you're using our product to do that. You should pay our artists to use yeah. it. So there was this battle going on and they were really expensive to make. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, those four that we did, we shot them for $20,000. Total? Yes. In one day, yeah. included editing, yeah. everything. Still. So then. A thousand hour, a thousand bucks an hour. Right? Yeah. If it was a 20-hour day, goodness. Yeah. That's not cheap. And um, then you have something like Michael Jackson. Yeah. You know, who's making, you know, eight-minute movies. I mean, really, right. thir- shooting on 35-millimeter film and hiring John Landau, it really got completely out of hand. But Electra said to us, now, this again, this was probably in early 1982, late 81. They just uh-huh. said no. They're too expensive. If MTV wants more videos, let them pay for it. But you're seeing, you're out there. You're you're seeing a response. Maybe you're you're. It doesn't sound like you're keyed in on the sales figures. I don't imagine. I mean, you were saying that you weren't getting checks. Were were you suddenly getting royalty checks that were bigger than before based on these sales, or were you already so much in debt with the videos and the? Yeah, we were in debt. So we were, okay. You yeah, weren't even but, seeing that. They're no. marketing that money. Right. Yeah. But because we owned our own publishing, the oh, songwriting money is not recoupable. Yeah. So that's what's keeping us alive. Okay. And do you go out on tour at all to to kind of um, take advantage of this newfound exposure, or are you guys still so much kind of in the studio that you don't really think that way? Uh, it's still a studio thing. I mean, okay. you know, we... we Again, we would we do some local shows, things around yeah. our our area, but in terms of really getting, we had never, geez, I mean, frankly, it wasn't until I think the 1990s that we even played on either coast. That's amazing. Um, I didn't realize know. what a unique thing then it was that I got to see you guys last year. Um, I mean, I knew it was unique at the time, but I just figured I was, you know, it had just been a while. But it sounds like, uh, you know, touring and Playing live was just never your bag completely. Yeah, yeah, just not that much. I mean, in in recent years, it's been it's become sort of a fun uh, perk, you know. I mean, it, yeah, it's, yeah, we're having more fun than we ever did when we play live now. That's incredible. Um, part of that is because um, 
now Skip was, I said, I told you about Skip uh, Meyer, uh, you know, was our drummer. Um, by the time Electra didn't kick in, and we did we did our third album for Electra. This was called Boomerang. Writing was on the wall before we even finished those tapes. While we were in right. the studio, the right we could see that the label was falling apart. Um, they were it was it was there was a, a recession going on. Record sales were dropping, um, and we weren't selling. Um, they picked up our option to do the next two records, and by the time we finished those tapes, we had heard that the vice president who signed us was being fired. Right. And uh, he heard it too. He went in and confronted them and asked them, and they said, "Oh no, you're safe." And within a couple of weeks of us coming home, um, after we delivered the tapes to them, he was gone. Yeah. And, and we knew that was that was trouble. That we're done. So yeah. we got our we 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 parted ways with Electra at the end of '82. Um, then. And now, Boomerang um, sounds very different from from the first two. Was that by so? I've been listening, like I said, to a lot of your earlier catalog lately and kept reading as many reviews as I can find. And I mean, be honest, was the, was the change in sound, was that you've already established the fact that your sound is a, really a sort of almost a slave to whatever kind of uh, gadgetry or technology you're into at the time. Was the newfound sound of shoes by the time Boomerang comes out, is that because you figure you've evolved? Or was there some sort of maybe capitulation to commercial radio, like we need to kind of change our sound to get played? What 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 was going on there that sort of motivated that switch from from tongue twister to boomerang? I, I think uh, all of those things. Uh, okay. You're exactly right. I think there was there was uh, pressure from uh, within uh, that you wanted to write something that would get played on the radio. Sure. There was pressure from the label to do something that they would play on the radio, that you would sell records. There was um, uh, the technology that now, instead of having four tracks, we were recording on 48 tracks. We were sure. basically recording on two tapes. So now you got a chance to really overproduce things. <laughs> yeah. And layer things and experiment. And yeah. by, by um, Boomerang, we were kind of um, on our own in the studio. Okay. Uh, because um, at that point they just said, and this was partly when we were doing Tongue Twister, 
Richard Daschet would go into Electra and would fight for us and would say, look, leave these guys alone. They know what they're doing. Don't bug them, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And so by the time we, we came to do Boomerang, um, we basically said, we can do this. You know, we'll just do it yeah. on our own. So, um, and they were in L.A. We were in Chicago. They they, they really had very little... I can imagine. You know, direct they weren't input. overseeing or anything, yeah. Yeah. So we worked with um, the... the the uh, studio manager um, wanted to work with us, and so we brought him in as, as associate producer, um, Hank Newberger, and uh, we really kind of and, – and, again, the times, musical times were changing. Suddenly keyboards and that whole, whole kind of synth right. thing was happening, happening. And so the musical tastes were changing, and we felt, well, we, we must somehow mutate ourselves to fit that. Right. Um, and, and then – Have you that, heard – like tomorrow night and too late and cruel you were you hearing those songs on the radio just not as yeah. often as you would have liked so exactly tell me what that was like i mean you had mentioned hearing on local radio occasionally something off black vinyl but were you were you ever out of town maybe in la or new york or in europe or something and you heard your song on the radio did, did yeah. you have that experience that people talk about yeah again our, our um i mean it, the the headiest times were um, after the release of Present Tense, as it was moving up the charts. Um, yeah. Electra had us do promotional tours, so we were flying to L.A. to to do interviews and photo shoots, and then we would fly mm-hmm. to the East Coast, and we would go to Boston or Philadelphia or to New York, and it was just doing going to record stores and signing autographs and 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 um, never playing. But just doing these radio tours, we'd go into the radio station and meet the program directors and shake hands. They'd play our records and do an interview on air. And then we'd go to, you know, WMMR and we'd do it there. And then we'd go to the NEW and do it there. And, you know, so um, it was, I mean, as a band, it was like, boy, this is cool. This is fun. And the record was moving up the charts. It was just really felt really exciting. And you would hear them them play it. Yeah, you would hear them play it and you would say, oh, man, this is cool. It's happening. It's going to happen. Yeah. you know, it, you know, it it has to be taken in the context of the time. Um, sure. You know, in retrospect, I look back and I I see all the things that that look, you know, I say, oh, that sounds this way or that looks that mm-hmm. like we shouldn't have done that. But um, in retrospect, you know, we just did the best that we knew at the time. Sure. Um, and girls, were you were you getting your fill of kind of the spotlight at all? Did you get to enjoy the perks of being semi-famous? Occasionally, occasionally, okay, you know, yeah. I mean, it was, it was. I mean, I've seen you in those videos. You look like Barry Gibb. I would imagine <laughs> you got, you got, uh, you know, you look like yeah, Barry we, Gibb's buddy. Oh well, thanks. We, you know, we, uh, we did okay. But or again, Andy you know, Gibb, sorry, Andy Gibb. We would come home, and um, you know, be in our apartments in Zion. You know, I mean, it was in yeah. Zion. We weren't anything. Nobody knew who we were. Nobody had MTV. Um, and unless they really paid attention, I remember saying to my mom, "Mom, look, we got a review in Rolling Stone." She'd say, "Oh, okay, that's nice." And then she'd say, "Hey, you were in Zion, Zion newspaper last week," <laughs> you know? right. and they would run. What some, a dichotomy! Yeah, yeah. In, people's um, perspective of the world and what what success means in a you know in a town in the Midwest that isn't privy to that kind of thing, they just see it differently, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. where so you we, guys are, and so you're kind of sheltered from some of the the perks of being famous it sounds like and it it really it really you know keeps you grounded no doubt because you know one one minute you're 
you're you're you're on the radio in New York, and the next minute you're taking your garbage out. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's that ups and downs. But I think that really helped us stay kind of you know situated. Sure. Um, so in the in in the summer of 1981, we we did do a show in Zion, which we had never done before. They had wow. this uh, this recplex where they have this ice arena. So, oh, so that's shoes on ice, right? That's shoes on ice. In a, brought in lights and brought in a sound company and and um, took our eight track recorder from our little studio you know rehearsals and took it into the ice rink and plugged it into the console and said the engineer that was mixing us live said you, all you gotta do is set the level so it's not distorted and then hit record yeah and we'll we'll worry about it later we'll mix it later you'll do the rest yeah and um, unfortunately he didn't he forgot about setting the levels until the very end of the show. And we oh, only no. had six songs that were distorted. And those are the six songs. And it's yeah. at the very end of the show, and the tape runs out as the audience is cheering. The tape actually runs off the tape. Wow. So that was all we could possibly use. And so what we, our idea was, let's give this to as a bonus to the fans. Let's give it yeah. a yeah. And um, so, you know, we were going back and forth with Electra, and we were going to give it out with um, uh, Boomerang. And they said, look, we don't want all six songs. We only want four. And we said, look, you it's you got to press it up. It doesn't cost you yeah. any more to have six songs. Um, do all six. And they said, no, we only want four. Weird. So um, when we went to master it, uh, we said, you know, fuck them. We're going to do six songs. Yeah. We're going to do all, yeah. we're gonna do all six. So we were doing all six songs, and they were calling, calling, calling the, 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 the mastering lab, wanting to talk to us. And we knew what it was about. We knew they were going right. to tell us, make sure you only do four. But we didn't take right. any of the calls. We, we ignored it. And then when we oh, were man. done, then when, they, when we talked to them, they said, what songs did we, we do, you do? And uh -huh. we, said, well, we did all six. They said, oh, <laughs> we, we only wanted four. And we uh -huh. said, oh, you know, well, you know, we're de they're done now. So, yeah, now they're you know, done. You, you may as well just put them out. Unless yeah. you want to pay for another mastering uh, session, they said, "Oh no, okay." So, um, and even that got screwed up with Electra. I mean, they, oh, they pressed those up, and instead of putting it in with the album, it was in a separate jacket, and it was shipped out separately. So, a lot of record stores, the managers would just keep them or give them away yeah. or sell them or do yeah. whatever, you know, whatever. And uh, a bunch of them were destroyed in a flood at the. Um, um, one of the warehouses in the Midwest. Oh no! So there weren't wow. that many of those that were floating around. So yeah. Wow. Okay. Well then, uh, so that's the end of Electra, and then 
I mean, Silhouette and Stolen Wishes come out, and once again, the sound continues to evolve. Uh, One of the reviews I was reading of one of the albums, I think it was Silhouette, was saying how in the past there there would have been no way that Shoes would have allowed keyboards on their album, and now here... Here there's keyboards. albums are really interesting i don't know how i don't know where you stack up maybe it's because i'm kind of a child of the 80s so my ear is already tuned to keyboards and synthesizers and drum machines and i i like that sound because i'm used to it you know but i think there's almost more depth but more things to find interesting about those records than the previous than the other records i'm not saying they're better just saying there's more to kind of grasp onto where do they fit with you you know i mean do you are you do you look back were you proud of those was there some uh concession going on was it just again another kind of another chapter of evolution in the band and where you were your writing style where does it it come from again it was all of all of the above i mean what happened after the after the electra separation now we're cut adrift and we didn't know what to do so but um but Electra had picked up a two-album option, and we'd only delivered one. So the budget for the fourth record was like a quarter of a million dollars. Oh, wow. So, so we were like saying, the only way that you, they can get out of the contract is there was a buyout clause. And it wasn't for $250,000. They, they sure. didn't want to spend $250,000 on another album or two hundred or whatever it would have been. So they took the buyout clause. Well, that was not a whole lot of money, but it was still, you know, I think it was around 50K. And we took that money and built a studio. And oh, really? literally, literally, the four of us drove every nail and put in every ceiling tile and laid the carpet and built the control room and wired every, all the gear in. And we bought a 16-channel tape machine now from our, you know, moving up from our 8-track to a 16-track. Uh-huh. And we dove into recording Silhouette when the studio... So we spent, you know, however much, six months in construction. Then we started recording Silhouette. At that point, Skip became disinterested. Okay. Our drummer. It's just and not happening big enough, fast enough for him. And he, he thought the band was going to be over. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I mean, that was, a, yeah. and that was a very difficult low period for us because we were, we didn't know where to go, we didn't know what to do. We assumed something must be wrong with us. 
music styles were changing, keyboards were coming in. And, and I do want to say that, let me preface it by saying, on the earlier albums, we would it would say no keyboards. Right. And the reason for that was not so much uh, sort of a thumbing of the nose at keyboards, but people were saying, who's playing the keyboards on this record? Oh, sure. Be- because of that little gadget that I built. Yeah, yeah. It sounded some of the some of the guitar parts sounded like keyboards. So, so we would say no keyboards on it. Kind of like I think Queen did that same type of thing, where you know he, Brian May would layer guitars and would create these harmonies and these chords that sounded like a keyboard. So we just it was more like a a, a, a badge of honor to say, look, we recorded we we created these sounds without using keyboards. Yeah. Okay, that um, makes sense. Okay. So by the t- but by the time we did, we started doing silhouette. We thought let's buy a synthesizer, and that created a lot of weird things within us because it made things. It's you could write a song literally. I mean, we could write songs literally just sure. shut down, turn the thing on, and and bang, here's the song. Let's do that. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. But but then it becomes a crutch. Then it's like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't have as much soul to it because you're just pushing buttons. You're not, you know what I mean? It was a, yeah. So so the album, and and again, we, we were thinking, okay, what do we have to change to become successful? Because obviously we did something wrong that we weren't successful. And we were just trying to get re-signed by another label, and the labels were saying, well, you know, Electra already tried and failed, so if they can't do yeah. it. What's yeah. different? What are you guys doing that's different that's going to give us a shot? So this was experimentation. Um, we would try some different things. And, and at the same time, it's not like we didn't like the sound of some keyboards on records. Sure. I mean, you know, um, again, the musical styles were influencing us. We were changing with that as well. Um, but when Skip stopped coming around, that was very difficult. We eventually had to sit down and say, look, if you want to be in the band, he got to participate, and he yeah. stopped coming around. So we stayed friends with him, but we he he didn't play on anything after that point. And John mm-hmm. played drums on some of the album. Sure. So it was in that sense. And again, we when we finished it, we had hoped we could get it released in America through a label. We we didn't get anybody accepting that wanted to release it. So we licensed it to three labels overseas: we, um, Demon Records in England, Line Records in Germany and New Rose Records in France. And okay. we did the artwork for it, and we, we made different covers. It's the same oh, really? picture. Yeah, it's the same photograph, but the colors are different. Okay, in one, yeah. You know, like, so in, in in England, my shirt might be navy blue. But right, in, right. In, in France, it's, uh you know, it's red. Yeah, and, okay. You know, and um, then... Uh, Okay. Not not too long after we got finally got that record out in Europe, we found out that the building that we had built the studio into had been sold, and oh, no. we didn't own it. It was like a little strip mall, and yeah. the new new owner wanted to build a restaurant right next door to our studio. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. So they they limited the number of hours that we could work. You know, they said you can, and and at that time to survive, we were all starting to do outside jobs. Okay, so that's another kind of chapter I wanted to get into. So at this point, well, so two things. Number one, you know, nowadays uh, bands release their albums independently or through smaller labels. They they recoup more 
royalties, obviously, because there's less overhead. They're doing most of the grunt work themselves. Were you experiencing that, too, with sales? Do you have a better idea of what the sales of Silhouette were was at the time because you were more in control of it? Well, no, because what happened no, was we, no, we, huh? we never released it on our own. We licensed well, it. Well, okay, and, yeah, okay, you licensed it, yeah, okay. So still, there, you're not seeing royalties from anything. No, we saw advance money, like they would maybe yep. advance us, you know, five thousand dollars to to release it. They'd send us five thousand dollars when they first initially released it, and then we would never hear from them again. <laughs> wow. So for this, from basically from '78 to what are we up to now? Like '84, '85. Yes, exactly. You're living off of advances, the occasional live show, and songwriting royalties. Songwriting royalties. I mean, how can you give me, if you're comfortable with it, can you give me an idea of what what kind of a lifestyle is that? Is that enough to live in an apartment? Are you enough? Is it enough to buy a new car, go on a vacation, or are you kind of hand to mouth? We were hand to mouth. We were hand to mouth. I mean, okay. we we were all we all still had our own apartments, and we were trying to live as normal a life as possible. But like I said, at that point, we started taking additional part-time jobs. It started out part-time. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I decided to do, which was really a gamble, because I had nothing to really build it on, and was to start uh, hiring myself out as a engineer and producer on in student studio work. Right. And is this at your studio there? Uh, I, I'm blanking on the name of it now. I what um, is it called? Sh- well, short order recorder. Short order recorder. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So, so another thing I want to ask you about then is that. Does re- this studio that you've invested in and bought, I imagine that becomes another revenue stream to kind of keep you afloat, right? Because anytime yes, anyone I, wants to come in and use your studio, they're paying you for it. Yes, and that's okay. that's where it killed two birds with one stone. Um, if, if As long as I was doing sessions, I was getting money, and part of the money went to the to pay the bills for the studio, for the rent sure. and the lights and all that. So that was probably a pretty good investment, right? I mean, it paid you back. I, I don't know if it paid you the full thing, but you were able to live off some money off that for a while. Yes, and and that started to expand. And and just about the time that that we decide we we realized we were going to have to move, um, we were starting to build a reputation for you know we started getting bands from Chicago coming up mm-hmm. because um, one of the very first things I did I was desperate for money once I needed rent money. And there was a local band, and I said to him, if you give me $800, I will give you a single by the end of the weekend. Wow. And they <laughs> they came in, and we recorded two songs, and I told them where they could get it pressed. I didn't, you know, I didn't do any of the pressing. It was horrible mm-hmm. artwork mm-hmm. and horrible. They did a inter. They did a printed sleeve for the single. It was terrible. Oh, wow. But, oh, wow. and then they, they said, okay, now we've got a thousand of these singles. What do we do? I said, well, send one here, send one there, send one there. Yeah. And by yeah. God, um, that single got picked as the recommended pop single of the week in Billboard. No way. Do yeah. we know who this band is? No. They're just some local guys. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, then they thought, wow, we can do this. So they yeah. started, they bought gear and they started recording on their own, thinking we'll just sure. do that ourselves. Okay. Right. Um, and the band imploded. <laughs> yeah, of course. But so um, okay, so I have another question. Oh, 
is it okay if I ask you another question about something else? Oh, yeah, go, something ahead, go else? ahead. Okay. So now from what I could find, I only ever found, and of course all I have is YouTube for this, one other professionally made video that might have been played on MTV. I'm curious, was that ever part of like Electra's plans to market you better? Or because I mean you've got those four that come on on the you know the beginning of MTV and they kind of help get you guys some new fans and stuff like that. Were was it just that you were sort of before the wave of of labels investing heavily in videos to launch their bands? Yes. And then when yes. you were and then you know when that became a thing, you were off of Electra and kind of off on your own. Pretty much. Now, is the video you're talking about is that for um, the song In Her Shadow? I was thinking of Feel the Way I, That I Do. There's oh, okay. the one, I'm blanking on it, where you guys are kind of walking around town. It looks homemade. That is, um, yeah, that was, um, that was uh, well, actually, and there's another one that was done before that. What happened was, and I forgot about this, so it was in, you know, if you go back to 1981, um, mm-hmm. no, uh, yes, the, 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 in the winter of 1981 to, to early 1982, um, so we were we had produced there were some friends of ours that had a band in Wisconsin out of Madison called Spooner and because oh, right. we had, yeah we had done some early recording with them we had kind of they asked us to come to the studio with them because they didn't really have much studio experience and and so we we kind of co-produced uh, you know a couple singles an EP Gary actually ended up doing an album or two with them then and um they were hosting a uh, a variety show, a telev- local television show on the CBS affiliate up in Madison. They asked us to come up and be the musical guest. So we did. And then our, okay. our thought was, hey, let's take this videotape, make it as good as we can, mm, yeah. and give it, give it to MTV. Because Electra's yeah. not going to pay for any. Let's do this video. So we I did, remember that now. Yeah, I yeah, saw that we, one too. Yeah, so we took the we took the song. Um, we're still in its demo stage, um, Inner Shadow. Again, we again, and, you know, it was like in a matter of, I don't know what, we spent eight hours on it, where we kind of stood around and played in the round and the cameras were around us and then made it look as un-video as we could, try to get kind sure. of close to the film. And we sent that off to MTV, and MTV started to play it. Huh. And okay. Elect- Electra called us up and was furious and threatened to sue us. 
and really? said, you, you do not have the right to do this. Anything that you release is the domain of Electra. It has to come through our proper channels. And they yeah. contacted Electra. They had it yanked off the air, and we never got another video played on MTV. Um, now, I don't know much of the story behind Stolen uh, Wishes. Was that, were you on a label by this point? Was that another no. attempt, or were you doing, you were doing that one independently, just like Silhouette? From from Silhouette on, we were never on another label. Um, okay. Unless we licensed them something that we had already recorded on our own. Okay, right. You mentioned Spooner. Now, Spooner, as I understand it, is where Butch Vig producer of Nevermind got his start and I'm curious if you have any memories or stories related to Butch Big. Well yeah we got to know the guys in Spooner um, Butch Big and um, and Doug Erickson uh, were both in Spooner we got to know them because we went to school with um, uh, Doug's cousin Ed Erickson and uh, we were uh, Gary in particular was friends with Ed and so uh, we got to know him through that and as we were working towards the same goal, um, Ed mentioned to us that his cousin was in a band, and, and that's how we met the guys in Spooner. Um, they asked us if, if we would um, kind of help um, co-produce some things in the early days of the, their band uh, because we had uh, a fair amount of recording experience at that point. And so we, we produced, um, I want to say, a couple of EPs or an EP oh. and a single or a couple, of, a couple of really early records, and and then of course, um, they went on from Butch and Doug split from Spooner, went wow. on to uh, Firetown, and um, when they were kind of disenchanted with how yeah. their their producer experience went within that, um, um, Butch decided that to branch crazy? out and produce on his own. Yeah, isn't that crazy that he is one of the most famous producers of all time, and yet you produced him? back in the day. Well, yeah, in the early days, you know, like I said, we were all kind of working towards a similar similar goal. As a matter of fact, Gary um, stayed in, in very close contact with them while they were building their studio because Gary's a licensed architect. And so um, their early version of Smart Studio looked a lot like a smaller version of our studio because it was it was built with a kind of remnants of our of our yeah. construction. So it had the same color theme and the same fabric on the walls and things like wow. that. Do you have it? I mean, was there any indication that Butch was, you know, going to be the game changer producer that he became? Did you, did he have an ear already for that kind of stuff or was he sort of growing along with everyone else progressing sort of at the same speed?
I, I think you know he um, he took to it like fish to water, and I know Gary Gary was very um, um, supportive of Butch and would would say to him, well, you know, you can do it. You know, you listen and you pay a lot of attention and and kind of encouraging in uh, in that way. Um, as a matter of fact, um, uh, at, at one point uh, Butch called us up and said, hey, how can I construct this deal? I'm doing this this little band that's going to be picked up by a major label and I want to know how to structure the deal and, and and I said well you know rather than kind of go word by word with the contract I did with Polygram when I worked with Material Issue I'll just give you the lawyer's name and number and, and he'll sort it out for you and and that was when he was doing <laughs> never mind and um, wow. of course it turned, it turned into a yeah. major blockbuster you know I mean who knows wow. that's the thing about producers is you just do your work as best you can at the time and what happens in terms of the level of success after that is really beyond your control. Sure. You just make the sure. best record you can. Um, he sent us a picture, an uh, autographed picture of them, of garbage, you know, and it was signed by yeah. you know, Doug and uh, Butch and Shirley. And underneath Butch's signature, he wrote, you, you rat bastards, you turned me into a studio rat. <laughs> <laughs> we had that hanging oh in our studio. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that crazy? I mean, yeah, you were there yeah. at the, you know, at the birth of this guy that changed music. Uh, anyway. I mean, if you, if you ever watch anything that Butch is in, I mean, he's in tons of those. I mean, like the, the Sound City documentary. Uh -huh. and stuff. He just has the perfect temperament for doing that stuff. Oh I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, exactly. I mean, he's, he's been doing it for twenty twenty odd years now, and he's just the go-to man because he's so, you know, consistent, level-headed, and and great with people. He's just a great. And his 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 ability to get that sound is you know legendary, of course. Yeah, yeah. From Gene Simmons from Kiss, and Gene, wow. Gene Simmons, Gene Simmons knew who we were. We had actually done a show opening for Kiss in '83 or '4, I think it was. Wow! Um, and he he was a fan. I mean, he liked pop music, uh -huh. he, and the Beatles were, were like his favorite band. And he wanted to buy. They tried to buy our publishing at one point, but we didn't want to sell it. So um, he was said, "I'm starting a label. It's backed by M, uh, BMG." 
Um, it's going to be called Simmons Records, and I'd like to sign you guys to my label. Wow. So we started, and he it was all based on the fact that he read this thing about shoes in Billboard again. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh, we started negotiations. At the time, we were doing demos for what was to be Stolen Wishes. And that dragged on for about a year and a half mm-hmm. of negotiations and back and forth, and, and it, it eventually it fell apart. Really? But, were you dealing directly with Gene during that time? Yeah. I'm a big Kiss fan. In fact, I'm reading a book on Kiss right now. Well, Gene was, uh, he was very respectful of us. I'll say that. I mean, uh-huh. and we reached a point where we, in, in phone conversations, and he would literally call us almost every night after they were touring, and he would get off stage and call us from the hotel afterwards. I mean, he was wow. a guy who was just, you know, a business machine. Yeah. Um, but it would be, it got weird because he would say, uh, read me some lyrics. You know, it's like hmm. now not, nothing sounds lamer than rock lyrics read over sure. a telephone, you know. Um, and he would say things like, uh, let's change the name of the band. He'd say, no, 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 we're not going to change the name of the band. Yeah. You know, he yeah. was looking at things from a, a, a marketing standpoint. And yeah. At one yeah. point it was like, uh, Let, let's put a chick in the band. It's like, no, we're not going to put a chick in the band. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, he was looking at it from the – but the worst right. of it came in January of 88 because he said – I'm ready to cross the T's and dot the I's. Let's do this deal. Um, I'll, I'm sending you tickets from the Kiss Travel Agency. I'll have a car pick you up at the airport, and I booked a hotel for you here in New York. Um, and then we'll have a meeting tomorrow morning at our offices. So okay, fine. So John and Gary and I got on the plane, flew in. Their car picked us up. We went to the hotel, spent the night, got up the next morning, went to the meeting, and we were kind of waiting out front for, in the lobby for, for a while and you know, we're thinking, okay, this is a game. You know, they're just kind of yeah. cool our heels. So Gene comes out and he says, uh, I should have canceled the meeting. I'm sorry. And we thought, oh no, he's got something that's come up. There's some kind of yeah. But, yeah. but you're here, you know, but you're here so come on, let's let's do this. And we thought, well, you flew us in, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. So we go into this meeting and um, and it's his business partner who is this very un-rock and roll older executive kind of guy, kind of frumpy, okay. you know. And uh-huh. uh, he starts telling us how much he doesn't like our band. And oh, no. and Gene says, uh, my partner just doesn't hear it. Just doesn't hear it. And we get into this, uh, I mean, it, uh, I say it started as a debate. It turned into an argument about what a hit sure. record was. And, you know, he'd say, you guys got to write some hits. And we'd say, what do you mean write a hit? I mean, we'd yeah. And he, they, he, they get billboard and point and say that's a hit. Say no, that's hindsight. Anybody can point afterwards, pick right. out a song beforehand and tell me it's a hit. You know, yeah. and then it would it was it just got really uncomfortable. And wow. And Gene said, I'm going to Europe to do the Monsters of Rock tour. So um, when I'm back, um, write me some hits and I'll contact you when I get back. Well, we walked out of there saying, fuck that. Yeah, you know? that's I it. I mean, you know, right? I mean. We went back and we were depressed, but we thought in the back of our minds we thought, well, we're gonna we're we're gonna write some songs, you know, we're gonna write some good songs here. And, and one of the things that he said, I mean, he would say things that made some sense. Like he said, write some songs that are like about you know, kind of very first person, you know, like uh-huh. you know, me to me to you kind of thing. Sure. Not songs like She Loves You, 
but songs like I Love You, you know, we said, right. oh, okay, let's, so we took it as kind of personal challenges in certain ways. And, um, and then um, six months later, he calls up and he says, look, I fired my partner. I moved the operation to California. Let's do this deal. I've got, already got approval from BMG. Wow. So we start all over again and we hire a lawyer and, and they spend months and it's the same thing. We hit this, we hit this roadblock where then when we're ready to get down to it, he says, uh, uh, you know, I, well, you know, eventually it just was like, you know, this guy's just jacking yeah. around. Let's forget this. So we finished the album and we put it out on our own. Stolen Wishes was, we actually, we shipped out the first promo copies on January 2nd of 1990. Girl, there's that much in this world that I'm sure of. But girl, Hadn't, the, the Rolling Stone thing hadn't come out yet. 
but it was starting to get press in other places. And so they asked for a copy. So we send it off, and a couple weeks later, Gene calls. And he said, hi, Jeff, it's Gene. I want to talk to you about your album. And I thought, okay, here we go again. Yeah, he says, right. <laughs> he says, I don't get it. And I said, what's that? I don't, I don't get it. You're not going to get 15-year-old girls excited about this. And I said, well, that's not, we're, that's not our target audience. And we're going for kind of the, the, the college alternative. I, I used the word alternative, which didn't really exist yet. But uh-huh. you know, I was trying to say like REM was doing it yeah. on college radio yeah. at the time. So that's that kind of different. It's not mainstream. It's a different thing. And um, he says, oh, you're going for the geeks and the nerds, the guys with the glasses that I used to beat up in school. We're like, what? 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 That's so Gene. I know. Say this. I know. Oh, wow. And and he says, uh, um, so then, so then, you know, I'm thinking to myself, the guy's got 10 million bucks. He's got nothing better to do than to call me up and tell me how much he doesn't like our Well, record. and he's not tied to Stolen Wishes, right? I mean, he wanted to be, but then he backed out. So Stolen yes. Wishes is completely independent of him. He's yes. just calling you to give offer his opinion, not because right. it's tied back to him business wise in any way. No, no. He was just saying he doesn't get it. He doesn't think it's wow. So then I said, Well, the the my last ace in my back pocket was I said, mm-hmm. Well, um, Gene, uh Rolling Stone disagrees because they've got a, rev- a four star review coming out in the April e- edition. And that was the last time we talked to him. Oh wow. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, so so after Stolen Wishes, then that brought in, you know, I mean, we probably sold 25,000 copies of that. Okay, okay. You know, and, and um, you know, so now we're, we've got some money. We can do some improvements to the studio. Now I'm producing bands that are starting to get signed to labels. I produced Material Issue for Polygram. I loved Material Issue back in the day. I saw them in concert in the spring of 94, and they put on a great show, and I always thought this was a band that was really going to go somewhere, writing in that, that wonderful power pop vein. But then I was shocked, but like most people probably to find out about Jim Ellison's suicide. Did you, do you have, what are your memories of Jim? I mean, do you have any indication as to what would have led to that? Or did he seem like, you know, kind of a depressed guy or how did you react when you found out about that? Well, Jim never seemed depressed. Jim was, Jim was um, Good. all about, um, uh, bravado. I mean, he always used to say, "It's all about confidence, man." <laughs> and um, and he was, uh, he and I, I I, I read an interview uh, with with Jim where he kind of referred to me as as sort of like being his older brother, um, and that's sort of the relationship that he and I had, um, which was at times tumultuous. I mean, he he could be a very difficult person to work with because he was very opinionated. Um, he was unabashedly a pop fan. I mean, he was. Mm. It, which was great to see that because at the time yeah. it wasn't cool to say that you liked sweet or that you mm-hmm. liked um, you know the grassroots or or someone like that. But he, if he liked the song, by God, he liked it, and yeah. it didn't matter what people. And I really respected that in him. Um, I was, of course, very shocked when I found out about Jim. I had talked with him not that long prior to um, mm-hmm. his suicide. He had called the studio, and I was in session. And I didn't really have time to talk with him. And I, he wanted someone's phone number. And I, I, I've racked my brain at the time who he was trying to get a hold of. I just can't recall. Um, and um, I told him I would uh, give him a buzz back. And, and I just, it, I never talked to him after that. Uh-huh. Um, and it was really uh, difficult. I mean, like I said, he could be very, he could be very 
uh, nerve-wracking when you work with him in the studio because he was so opinionated. But yeah. I worked with Jim before the the uh, record deal and before even the, the last two members of the band joined, between before Mike and mm-hmm. Ted joined the band. I worked with um, uh, Jim prior to that. And uh, the first their first album was actually the demos that we had done. I mean, literally... If it would scrape up a couple of hundred bucks, I'd get a call from wow. Jim and he'd say, "Listen, I can afford, I can afford four hours of time. What can we do?" You know, so he'd come in and uh, and um, at uh, I I have a lot of great memories of working with Jim because he would he was a contradiction. He he was really a soft heart, you know, and uh-huh. um, he owed us money and we we front would front him studio time to, so he could kind of get the project going and uh-huh. and he owed he owed money and so he came by the studio one time and he had a little three foot length of track lighting. And he said, "Hey man, how much you give me for this towards the studio bill?" I said, "Okay, all right, I'll give you thirty bucks." You know, I mean, he was, wow. you know, he he was just, uh, wow. but yet then he would hang around because we were moving from from our old studio. We had built a new one, and he helped us actually lift gear and load it into the truck and move. Oh my You know, God. he was just, he, he was, uh, but he was he believed rock and rollers should kind of, you yeah. know, uh, I hate to say live fast and and, and uh, leave a good looking corpse, but I mean, he yeah. really kind of believed that whole rock and roll thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. He was he was somebody who I think was he was not of his time because that was you know, early nineties was not necessarily the heyday for power pop, even though it may have influenced some of that stuff. I felt like they were the kind of band that if they had stuck it out, even though their popularity was beginning to wane, was due for a, a renaissance or a rebirth at some point that would have gave them a, a a stable career from then on out. They would have eventually got the respect and the kind of the insp- the influ- influence they deserved. You know what I'm saying? The, or the recognition yeah, of an influence. Yeah. I agree. And, and it's it's amazing to me how, how many years after the fact that people are, uh, you know, I don't want to say discovering them, but I mean, it's coming out more and more that they, they were so well respected and revered. And, yeah. and to me, they were, they were, they kind of predated dream day. You know, they were kind of yeah. Green Day. Sort of did that same type of pop punk thing. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And Jim had a great voice. I mean, Jim's voice could cut oh, through yeah. steel. You know, totally. I mean, when he, I never had a hard time pulling his voice out of a mix. <laughs> Good. You know, he he was just he had a great voice. I loved his voice, and even now I've got yeah. their stuff on my iPod. And when his when his stuff comes up, yep. you know, I just I shake my head and say, Jim, what did you do? You know. I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so sad. It's tough. So we're and we're talking inter- international pop overthrow. That's the album you worked on, right? I worked on the first two. Yes, that one. Yeah. And and then the next one, Destination Universe. Yeah. Oh my gosh, those are classics. Classics. Yeah, that so. was. Um, and like I said, they were they were. Uh, the first one was really just our de- the demos that we had done, and that's what got them signed. And the label decided yeah. to release the album as is. So and it was I, still to this day that's their most successful record. That totally, totally. Is, yeah. Valerie loves me. I mean, that's one of the best pop, power pop songs of all time, ever. Valerie's dancing on the room above my bed. You know, all the world below to see. Valerie's leaving on a car. Such a shame she's not with me and all the pretty things Know the love my heart could bring I would give my whole life to her 
Yeah, that's a great song. And he knew who you were. Was he, I assume, familiar with shoes? And that's partly, or was it a location thing? You were the closest, you know, studio that he could work on, or or was your oh, no, far from shoes? It. Far okay, from okay it. that's he, what I thought. Okay, good. He was he was a uh, uh, he was a big shoes fan, and um, he had to come way out of his way to come to our studio because okay. we were in okay. we were in Zion, which was a good hour yeah. drive each way for him. Because he okay. lived down in the city, and there was tons of studios down there, and people that would have loved to have had him come in yeah. and work. Um, and he did dabble once in a while with, at other studios, but um, you know he he would always come up to which uh, you know in retrospect I would say my God you know he was making that trip in the band you know I mean you know yeah. before every session and after every session they would drive in an hour each way um, to to wow. do that work. But he came because he loved shoes, and so he yeah, wanted to work I mean, with you. And I I think after the first record um, he he trusted me and he trusted. Um, uh, the fact that we had been there and been through it, and yeah. you know, he would ask my opinion, and and I would tell him things about what we had gone through. So I think he felt a kinship there. He knew I wasn't going to hustle him and I wasn't going to bullshit him. Um, yeah. And and so that was a, like I said, we had that bond. There was a respect level there. Yeah. And I think I yeah. think he had a sweet spot for my wife too. <laughs> oh well, that whatever works, man. Right? <laughs> That's great. But they all did. They all did. was a guy who was a fan of ours and I had met him when I was freelancing because I, I used to bounce around at other studios. If I didn't have a session at mine, at, right. at our studio, I would go down to Chicago or, or the South Suburbs, their studio, and, and do freelance work. And I got to know this guy, this drummer named Rick Mank, um, who was, and he used to write to us back in the Black Final days. Um, okay. And and he was kind of, oh, he was one of those guys who was always in the media. He was always writing letters, fan letters, and, and plugging okay. in. And he started a band and, you know, was in the studio. So I got to know him from working on uh, some things at one of the studios. So when we needed someone to to, to do some drumming for us, I, I said, well, hey, there's this Rick Mank guy. So he's the guy we had played drums on Stolen Wishes. But, again, you know, this is of the yeah. time. When we were recording Stolen Wishes, you know, we were having these drummer issues because we didn't really have a drummer. So we and Rick, we could only get for a very short period of time. We thought, let's use this new technology where we can have the drummer come in and play instead of on a drum kit, play on these electronic pads, uh-huh. and store that stores in the computer, so it doesn't chew up ten tracks on the tape machine. Right. Right. And it's and then we can dr- change the drum kit right out from underneath them. If we say ah the bass drum's too boomy or or the snare needs more snap to it, we can after he's gone change those sounds. Um, but it was really early on in the days of of that type of technology, and we were on the phone with the, the designer of the software for um, um, Cakewalk, uh, Greg okay. Hendersh- Hendershot was the guy's name. And we'd call him up and say, look, we're trying to synchronize our computer to the tape machine. How do we do that? He goes, you can't yet. It's, I'm working on it, but, but that's not you know, that's not something we can do. So we had to kind of manually synchronize those two, literally sit with, you know, at times, our thumb and, and, and slow down the tape machine or, or, or the yeah. bass speed and speed so the drums stayed in time. So Rick played drum, and the drums, again, of the time, 
technology, when I listen to Stolen Wishes, I just go, God, I wish we'd done that on real drums. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, because now I can feel the the electronic drum right. part of it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, well, that was the sound of the era, though, too. I mean, it's not yes, unlike exactly. every, most of the other stuff that's out there, too. Yeah, exactly. And again, I like that stuff because I grew up on it, but some of it, you know, <laughs> to a lot of people it sounds dated or it's different or it's 80s or whatever, but those are all good things in my mind. But Yeah, and um, yeah. as as that album became successful and um, we started to, to do more things, suddenly now we're, now in the early 90s, the studio was hopping, we're selling records, mm-hmm. we started signing bands, we did a Christmas record called Yule Tunes, which was just really, I mean, really? just this really wonderful holiday thing where we contacted yeah. a bunch of friends and said, "Hey, can you write a Christmas song for us? We want to do this Christmas record." And and everybody wrote these really cool things. One thing that Rick Mank had gone on to do was he hooked up with this guy who we became friends with named Matthew Sweet. And oh yes, that's how I know that name. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Trying to think. Matt, how do I know the name Rick Mank? Yep. Yeah. And so when he was touring in 88, he based his tour out of our studio. That was home base. He'd come home, okay. and they would kind of they, they would stay in Zion at the, down to, at the beach. There was a hotel down at the beach, and they, yeah. um, and they would rehearse during the day in our studio. And that's when we were making our transition from 16-track to 24-track. Okay. Um, so, so then I did the, the next Material Issue album on a 24-track yeah. tape machine. And wow. then... Um, we did, and then we started um, Propeller. Um, and right. we started that probably in 92. Um, and it's because we're working around, now we got to book time in our own studio because sure, you know, there's sure. sessions going on to keep, and the overhead's higher and the bills are higher. So so now I'm burned out because I'm in the studio all the time. Yeah. I, I didn't have the patience to, to do eight-hour session and then say, okay, you guys are done, see you later, and then, and then have John and Gary come in, and they're like, okay, right. let's get going, you know. So we started has, to work. Does the studio in, become your job? I mean, yes. is this, okay, so your full-time job now is running the studio, running the label, producing bands, doing your own thing almost as on the side, right? After yeah. Stolen Wishes, it sounds like Shoes takes a back seat to the business that's running through your studio at this point. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And, um the the label was popping, you know. We were we were doing. I mean, when we released uh, Shoes Best, I mean, we were able to sell a couple thousand without even breathing hard. I mean, it was That's like right. the first thing, making a few phone calls, and we put together this distribution network of independent distributors. It was like, you know, we sold ten thousand before we even knew what we were doing. Uh-huh. And um, so, so. And are you married? Like, and do you have a family? And are you yes. settled down by this point? Okay. Uh, yeah, I got married in um, '87. The year shortly 87. after we, shortly after uh, Shoes Best came out, I got married okay. in uh, November. In uh, Stone, uh, not Stone, which is um, Shoes Best came out in um, September of '87, and okay. I got I got married in November of '87, and we actually okay. we held a reception, had a reception at the studio. Oh, <laughs> and uh, nice. but I had been I had been doing just recording. That's what I had been living on since Electra, since 1983. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so really now it's you know 1993, ten years later, and I'm getting burned out because I'm in the studio so much. So Propeller became this uh, talk about a low point. You know, mm-hmm. suddenly now uh, we needed 
keep cash flow. We needed to keep the label moving. We needed to yeah. pay for manufacturing, and we needed to pay the bills. And so uh, we started to record that album in shifts, where I would kind of do my stuff when I was – if I didn't have a client during the day, I would work on my stuff and try to do tracks on, you know, on, on their songs. And then I would try to get home by six or seven at night to see my family and have dinner and have a little bit of a life at night. Sure. And um, so those guys were kind of getting upset about that because, mm. you know, I mean, you know, we weren't working together as a full team. And, are they uh, also employed by the studio or are they doing other no, things? No. Um, Gary, Gary was doing some architecture. One of the firms that right. he had, he had worked for, um, back in the, uh, uh, before we got signed to Electra in the late 70s, had basically contacted him saying, look, we need help. Mm. We'll just give you a key. You can come in and work when you want. Nice. So that that really kind of took the load off Gary. And John yeah. got into okay. doing some, John got started doing some uh, part-time graphic work. Um, okay. But um, uh, then when the label really started to click, after Stolen Wishes, I mean, the label got so busy that I couldn't I was really complaining to them about the fact I said I can't do this I can't do the studio and the label at the same time I mean the phone's ringing while I've got a literally while I've got the red light on I mean I have to right. you know take an order from a distributor in New York or, or do an interview and I've got clients sitting here so there was a point then when Gary said um, Gary started coming into the studio he, he started doing less of the architecture stuff and started coming in to do, do record company stuff um and um, so he would – we had the offices in, in the basement for the record company. Okay. So he, uh-huh. he would come in – if I was doing a session, he would come in and go down there and work on label stuff while I was doing a session upstairs. But um, it was really – it was a very tense time for us as a band. Yeah. And because what was happening was by the mid uh, – by like just before we we released Propeller in 94 – I remember calling one of the distributors to say, we have this album coming. And he said, well, I can't tell you that I will be able to pay you for whatever we order. And I oh, thought, really? I thought, what the heck is he telling me here? And he said, you have to ship them to me because we are your distributor. And yeah. If you don't, and if you don't, you're impeding my ability to do business. But if you drop us, as a distributor, then you don't have to ship them to me. Huh. And I, I said, oh, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what's going on here. They're going under. Yeah. And we had, we had been experiencing that where we had maybe, at, at the peak, we might have had two dozen distributors across the country. Um, by that point, they started to disappear. Um, mm. They were merging because more and more it became a national thing where you had to be... Right. You know, I mean, for a magazine to want to write an article about you, you couldn't just have a distributor in Chicago. You had to have distribution across the whole country. So the independents were disappearing or merging, and we were. It was. It became a nightmare where we would hmm. ship five thousand copies to a distributor in St. Louis, and then they would go under, and the product would disappear, yeah. and we would never get yeah. paid. And we would find out that the product was bought by another distributor in New York. So now they return $4,000 worth of material that they never bought from us. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it was it, you couldn't track where it was coming from. And sure. it and and then by the time so we decided we needed to do an after propeller, which I still think is a really good record. I still like that record a lot. I haven't even heard, that's where I drop off. I I've heard ignition, but I haven't done propeller or fret buzz or the ones in the middle there. I haven't well, had a chance to listen to those yet. Propeller the thing I really like about it, number one, we're on twenty back on twenty four track again, so the sound quality is better. Okay. The um I think there are some really good songs on that record. And they're back to real drums. And yeah. so all from that standpoint I really like it a lot. Um there there are some times that 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 we we were working independently, but still we were you know, I mean, we were always together when we mixed the songs. And we still had a lot of input. I mean, you know, like I remember particularly, I did a solo on one of Gary's songs. Um, he had this ballad called The Last of You, which I thought was a beautiful song. And I did the part, and while he was downstairs, and I got, went down and got him, and I said, "Listen to this, and let me know what you think." And he came up and he said, "Well, yeah, can you do something that ascends right here instead of descends?" And, and I said, "Okay." So I fixed that, and then um, that was it. I mean, so we still had huh. interaction and stuff, but it was we kind of needed some space from each other, you know? I mean, because yeah. in yeah. the early days, it was like we were. Even if you did, weren't playing anything, you were sitting in the control room with, to, to give the other two guys support. And right. that, that, that's a great thing in terms of camaraderie, but eventually sure. you start you start going, man, i, I got to get a break. I need some air. Yeah. I need to relax. Yeah. And, and I had gotten, like I say, I had gotten married, so um, I had a, a stress from that level that those guys didn't have. Of course, yeah. Um, so, um, but I still think Propeller is a very good record. Okay. And when we... But then we decided we needed to have something. Uh, we went out to tour to support it. We thought, let's record this, and maybe we can get something live that we can release to kind of have another product for the pipeline, you know, for sure. the streamers. Yeah. And um, so that was what Fret Buzz was. <laughs> called uh, Double Door, which is a very nice place. So so that was cool. And we had tried okay. recording the whole tour, but we were using these things called ADATs. And um, they were a very early digital recorder. 
there were eight channels, and we wanted 16, so you had to synchronize the two of them together. And there were all kinds of synchronization problems. The technology wasn't very stable at that point. Right, and okay. Most of the shows were, we couldn't get the machines to work. So that show was close enough to home, being in Chicago, that we had time to kind of set it up, you know, make yeah. sure everything's working. And that became Fret Buzz. And okay. shortly, shortly after that, I remember we, we by then we we condensed the distribution to one national distributor called DNA, which was okay. part of Rounder Records, where like Alice Rounder, and Klaus had sure. from. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I remember they we were like pounding our fist on the table, saying, "Look, we need to get paid for these records. You know, we, you know, we sent you this, we sent you this, we sent you this, we need to get paid." And they said, "Well, you know." We, things are slowing down in distribution and, and sales and stuff, so we're going to return some product for credit. It's okay. Mm. And a semi pulled up with $90,000 worth of CDs on it. Uh, and we're like, wow, my God. Wow, yeah. And that was the point where we said, nope, we're done with that. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So that was, that was when we got out of uh, regular wholesale distribution. Yeah. Um, well, and that's the end of the band, pretty much, right? I mean, so uh, this is something I'm well, curious well, about. Well, you, you, you oh. would have thought it would have been. You would have thought that would have been the end. But the right. thing is, the problem is we remain friends. So sure. um, okay. in, in um, 2000 and, let's see, that was in 1996, we did a limited edition double CD called As Is. And... Mm-hmm. It was, it was a shot in the arm. And what that was, we had the idea. Again, we needed some money. We needed something to, to some product out there. We went through mm-hmm. all of our old tapes and we put together a double CD with a really deluxe package. And it had an embossed cover. We had the special kind of notary type stamp that said "Shoes as is" on it, stamped on the front. And each one was numbered. And it was two CDs. And on one CD, it had the two albums. Um, one of Versailles and Bazooka that had never been released to the public. Other okay. Than the, uh-huh. you know. So that was on one CD. And the other CD was made up of outtakes and alternate mixes and stuff going back to Hedger Tales. I mean, it was just this, this mixture of... So to do that, we had to literally sift through everything we had ever recorded. Sure. And yeah. that brought that brought us together. That forced us to... And we had a blast. I mean, because now we're laughing... And we're talking about. Remember when we did that? And got it. You remember how you did that? And 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 that album really made us feel good again. You know. Huh. So. So what's um, the outcome of this? I mean, so what well, is, what happens is out as this comes out. And here's another thing, if you don't mind me asking. So are sure. these things? It sounds like the creative juices, the need to put out music and to create, and probably. Most, uh, almost most importantly, to be together and hang out with each other as friends uh, remains no matter whether you're selling albums or you're not. That that Absolutely. impulse never goes away, right? Absolutely. Yes, we are friends and, first. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but there's, you know, like any band, especially nowadays, you're barely going to sell anything anymore. So are you making enough money off of the sale of something like as is to keep you afloat, or is this mostly just not indulgent, but it's satisfying the creative urge 
most primarily, and whatever comes after that is, you know, frosting. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It, it served the purpose of, of giving us a project to focus on, and it gave us an influx of capital because it was a limited edition. There were only about 1,100 of those packages. They sold for 45 bucks a piece. And wow. we sold out of you know we sold out of them so we, so there was a, a, a temporary influx of capital, and literally from that point on for the studio until we closed the studio, the only thing that that, that kept it afloat was um, mail order sales of a back catalog and and sessions that I was doing. Okay. Um, by by 2004, I said let's let's sell this. I said you know we haven't used it now for a new album in almost 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it, 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 it needs daily care and feeding. It has monthly bills. I mean, we were lucky that we always had work. But I yeah. was tired. I was tired of I recording other bands. I said, I love recording, but I, I mean, I'm, I get frustrated. It's like sitting and watching someone else eat. You know? Sure. I, you know? I, and so yeah. in 2000, and we could see the digital thing was really studios were starting to feel that this digital recording, people now being able to record on laptops and Pro Tools. And yeah. Stuff. So in 2004, we sold the building and sold the gear. And I put a digital setup in my home, and Gary put a digital setup in his home, and I started a solo album. So and that's another question. So, so you made Cantilever, your solo yes. album. You made that in your home studio. Right. As far as these things go it a little bit there were three tracks that I started in in short order recorder and okay. then I bounced it bounced it onto the digital format and finished the songs at my house and then released that in 2007 so again this goes back to and this is why specifically I was kind of singling you out from the band because you had done this solo album um, I mean you know shoes has a cult following but it's small it's um what are the expectations when you make a solo album? And what, why is it solo versus shoes? Um, you know, what's, what's going into your, what's, what's playing in your brain? What kind of thoughts and expectations do you have when you think you need to create a solo album after well, being in a band for 20 years or whatever? A, a couple of things. One, we were all very influenced by that kind of do-it-yourself ethic that, that you had with, Todd Rundgren's Something Anything and, and uh-huh. Paul McCartney's first album. It was really hard not to say to John or Gary, hey, you guys want to come over and do some vocals and play on this? But I really thought to keep it pure, you know, in the sense of that, that original concept of just one guy's musical thing, mm-hmm. I, you know, but 
you know, Gary said, hey, you want to come over and listen to some mixes over at my house? We'll see how it sounds over here. I said, okay. So, you know, and then John, you know, John said to me, I said, John, what should I do for the cover? Because he's still doing graphics, you know. And and he said, look, well, I've got this this, um, wooden table that just looks cool. Yeah. And and so he one morning he comes by, and he's got this little wooden table under his arm, and That's he a says, "Great cover, yeah." And he, he says, "I've got these uh, these letters that are you know these little kind of Scrabble letters." So I said, "Oh, thanks." So I, so I literally just spilled them out on the table and took my cam- digital camera and took the picture, and that was it. Wow. Um, and um, a couple weeks later, Gary says. Uh, Hey, he calls me up and says, hey, can you come over? He says, John and I are here and we're, we're listening to your song. We did some work on your song if you want to hear it. I said, oh, I'd love to, but I'm going to see this com- to this comedy show. You know, I'll, I'll do it, you know, tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. Well, they had, they had uh, that was one of the songs for what became Ignition. regular life what did you do what job did you get um 
I still do it. And that is um, I fix electronic gear for for amplifiers and, you know, for bands. I fix uh, – Okay. Okay. I work on keyboards and guitar amps and and, and you know power amplifiers and mixers or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been doing that for the last seven because you know in the last seventeen years I've been doing it for a, a local music store. But um, you know when we had the studio, I had to do it every day. You know, yeah, yeah, to keep to keep it running or to wire a new piece of gear in or whatever. Yeah, I had a feeling um, you'd say something like that. So that yeah. and, and all three of you guys still live in Zion and. It's not Chicago, so I would imagine it's not that expensive to live there. So you're able right. to make a comfortable living for your families just there in your hometown and doing something you're an expert at, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we don't live, but we don't live in Zion anymore. Our, our family. Oh, that's right. Up. You're up in Wisconsin now. Right? Yeah, we we're just across the border into Wisconsin now, and okay. and we've got you know like I mean you know Gary Gary has a, a beautiful house right on Lake Michigan, looking out over the lake. Which in Chicago wow. would be a you know probably a five million dollar house if he was in Chicago. Right. Um, you know my wife and I you know we've been married for uh, it'd be twenty eight years. Okay. Um, and um, you know we have a nice house, kind of a Frank Lloyd Wright style mid century modern great. home. Wow. And um, and you know, like I said, the, the the there's so much that we do that's you know besides or in between the records um, that, um, you know, were, were, you know, like uh, uh, there was, there was a, a, a film that was, was um, that asked if they could license some songs for us a couple of years ago uh, from oh. us. And, and um, um, this um, independent filmmaker was doing this and it was, it kind of reminded me of us because he said, you know, I've been, I'm self-funding this. I don't have a lot of money, but I really am influenced by your music, and I really want to use some songs. If that's, if you could let me use a song in the film, so we let him. I think he used four songs. Wow. Our, our publishing administrator was furious with us. Do you know how much money you gave away? Yeah, yeah. You know, but this is one artist helping another artist. I mean, this sure. is not, um, you know. Um, and it, it's rich. either get in there for free or not at all, because it sounds like you wouldn't have had the money to pay you. So right. better get the get better get the exposure for free and just help someone out than um, put but your it, foot down and then not get included at all. But as it turns out, that that filmmaker, whose name is Justin Fielding, is now doing a well, I guess you'd call it a power pop documentary. Really? And, yes. And he's Interesting. he's he's filming people like you know um, uh, Vicky um, uh, Peterson and her sister from um, sure. the Bangles uh, and, from the Bangles yeah in a, and Emmett Rhodes and you know these people um, part of what happened another thing that happened in that time period sort of starting in 2007 or 2008 is we were contacted by this woman who became a fan in her teens. She's from upstate New York, and now she's obviously a grown woman. She's a, a dean at a college there, and she teaches uh-huh. Eng- English lit, and she wanted to write a biography on shoes. I saw that. I almost bought it at the concert, and I've been kicking myself ever since. I was and so overwhelmed with how much great merch and product there was at that concert <laughs> I that I couldn't pick one thing, to. and I just thought, I, if I buy one thing, I'm going to buy ten things, and I so I didn't buy any, and I've regretted it ever since because I wanted that book. 
and I regret well, not she, buying it right she now. She sells them on Amazon, and yeah. also she's got a, a thing. And anyhow, she, she spent four years researching that book. And Amazing. So we were, you know, again, when we weren't recording, matter of fact, she didn't even know we were recording the new album. But, but the album kind of came about as a result of one of the things that was, I won't say it was the thing, but one of the things that kind of rekindled that desire to want to do another album was as we were doing interviews, you really realize how much you mean to each other yeah, uh, as, friend, yeah. as friends and how what we have as a, as a unit is, is special, you know? I yeah. Mean, and... Um, when we finished Ignition, we were we were shocked at how responsive people were, and we went we ended up doing things and playing at places. We went down and played at South South by Southwest in Austin. That's great. We played um, at Ravinia in um, you know the northern suburbs of Chicago, which is this really nice, beautiful yep. place where bands play. And uh, you know we and then you know we did the thing in New York at at um, yep. in Brooklyn well, there to to make more money playing live shows than we ever have. Yeah, I would imagine. And, Power pop's um, a much more respectable thing now. It's, it's uh, you know, you know, and it's th- having a resurgence. I just did a um, well, we we all did um, an interview for there's a, this. And you probably know about this series of books by Ken Sharp called uh, Play on Power Pop Heroes. And it's oh a three yeah book. no okay yeah it's a it's a three and Ken Sharp wrote a Kiss um, book I think it was year before last as a matter of fact yeah. Um, but Ken has been a, a supporter and friend and fan for the last 20-plus years, 25 years, 30 years. And um, so the first volume covered the origins of what would be the touchstone of Power Pop, being the Beatles, Badfinger, uh-huh. um, you know. I mean, he includes a bunch of people that are kind of stretching it a little bit. But, but that's the point that I made, was that Power Pop is not just guys doing Beatles clone, you know, it's, it's, to me, Foo Fighters are power pop, and Fountains of of Wayne are power pop, and that band Jet is power pop, I mean, you know, it's, 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 you know, Fleetwood Mac, it's, 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 it's so all-encompassing, it's a huge genre, and, but most people think of it as this jangly guitar Beatle copy thing, and that's not it, Um, but there is, there is something about it that's, Similar, but I said the thing about a power pop band is most of the bands that people would say are, I mean, like the Beatles, obviously are considered the, the, uh-huh. probably the, the 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 mother of you know or the fathers of power sure, pop. Of course. Yeah. They would they weave in and out of it. I mean, Helter Skelter, they wouldn't call that a power pop song, and or or Revolution, not right. a power pop song. But that's just it. They they swerve in and out. They expand yeah, the genre. Yeah. You know. So yeah. anyhow, there's, there's the volume two comes out next month, and I guess there's a fairly large chapter on us in that. Um, good, good, good. That, that so it's keeping um, it alive. Yeah. Oh yeah. And this I mean, Justin Fielding is doing his Power Pop documentary. He said he was going to come in and film at some point in April, maybe May, um, for inclusion in that film when they get that together. When you look back on your career, what is the highlight moment? The what's the craziest, funnest, or most memorable you know memory from your time uh, in rock? Is there one experience or one incident that stands out above the rest? Um, 
Well, I mean, I can I can tell you that when we were in Japan, um, that was pretty crazy because yeah. uh, you know that was just I mean I remember we we looked at each other and said what would you have thought yeah you know th- thirty years ago that we'd be standing thirty five years ago that we'd be standing in Japan doing this still That's doing amazing. it but yeah. um, one thing that we we all very distinctly remember we 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 bring it up every now and again was when present tense was going up the charts and we were things were really popping and it was looking like the album was really going to take off and we were doing an east coast promotional tour we were we were sitting in a seafood restaurant and we all remember that because one of the one of the local reps came in and said you know it's it's number 60 with a bullet this week you know and, and, wow. and we were, were we just felt like Wow, this is it. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're, we're here. It was, it was a great meal. We were having lobster or something, and and um, and you didn't have to pay for it. And right? we didn't have to pay for it. The right. label was paying you to treat you to a nice dinner. Yeah, yeah. And yep. we 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 felt like we were being taken care of. I mean, like they yeah. would send a car for us. They would book our hotels for. And it just felt like, wow, we get to breathe a little bit, and instead of doing yeah. everything ourselves. But then, you know, the reality comes back that, you know, you, no one is going to care as much as you do about your own work. Eventually, they're going to say, well, yeah, but it didn't sell three to four million like we projected. Right. So, um, and, and like you have said, um, we do it because, number one, we have the, the urge creatively. Sure. To just Sometimes that just comes on you and you say, you wanna, I want to do something. And part of it is just the the uniqueness of the friendship, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, these three, these two other individuals, um, you know, what we've been through together, no one else can can identify yeah. with that. So that really bonds us. And if your expectations are in check, and you're able to have a regular job that sustains the family, but throw out the occasional, um, you know, creative fit, whether it's ignition or um, you know, some of the side projects or a show here or there, it keeps it keeps shoes out there for their for the cult fan base that you have. Kind of feeds them, keeps them coming back for more. Um, sounds like kind of an idyllic lifestyle. I mean, overall, are you happy with the way that everything turned out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is is you know we we always respected those bands that that didn't sell a million records like Big Star was a big influence right. on us. Yeah. But yet, until the last 10 years, nobody knew who the hell they were. But to right. us, we knew who they were when they were releasing those records. We really loved that stuff. And yeah. it, it doesn't really surprise me. I mean, we certainly wanted to be very, you know, successful so that we could, you know, have lot, a lot of money and the ability sure. to, to record whenever we wanted. But, but we... we we look at our careers as as a success because we we didn't sell out. We stayed friends. We do it kind of on our terms, yeah. and we we really have after forty years have have a, a developed a, a legacy of some sort. Yeah, um, it's out there. That, that that we're we're happy about. I mean, yeah. Um, reading that Ken Sharp book, I mean, there are other bands that are not as happy. You know, like yeah. Like the Raspberries, you know, and they're a good band. Yeah. I like some of their stuff, and yet they look at what what they did as as a failure. They look at like they didn't yeah. make it, and it's like, well, you're looking at it for the wrong for the wrong telescope here.
Havoc, Jeff Murphy of Shoes, such a good man. I uh, am so grateful for, and I will never forget all the time that that guy gave me to run through his career. Such a good guy. Coming up next week, we are going to be talking to Jimmer Podraski. He was the lead singer of the 80s, late 80s, early 90s college rock band, The Rave Ups, who will forever be immortalized as that band in Pretty in Pink. They played in that club scene in the movie. He's had a very interesting life, and we get into some of the details in our next episode. Big thanks to Aaron Syret, as always, especially for this episode. It required a lot of attention, and he did it, and I am so grateful for him for that. Please find us on Facebook, iTunes, Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. Send me an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com. Communicate with us however you want. Please do. We're so thankful for our listeners. Thanks, folks. (laughs) 